Welcome to Forty Go On Fourteen, Episode One Hundred and Sixty. I am Mike. I am Patrick. I'm Joel, and I'm Josh. And this week we're talking about things then and now. Mine is not as attentive as it was back then, but you know, you get a little older. Still hangs to the left. I think you may have researched the wrong thing. I'm... Oh, you know I did. <laughs> <laughs> I researched the hell out of it. There's a reason you wear those glasses. I'm feeling a Kurt Russell right now. <laughs> I watched all the Fantastic Four I could find. <laughs> Once again. Oh. Yeah. Highly oh. researched group. <laughs> he found something more disappointing than my penis to watch. <laughs> it's clobbering time. <laughs> does your does your penis, is it made up of like bricks and rocks and things? Josh, I'm just imagining Josh staring at his crush. Like, it's clobbering time right before he gets <laughs> He could, takes the head off a little thing, Pez dispenser, and sticks it on the end. <laughs> I call it Mr. Fantastic. <laughs> well, That's his invisible girl. What? if you oh. haven't figured out what we're talking about this week... I haven't. Yeah, God knows I haven't. <laughs> um, we're talking about the movies The Thing, uh, the 2000, well, 2011 for the now, and uh, two th- uh, 1982 19. yep. for then. Yeah, so... Uh, but right now, if you're out playing with your thing, what's something that you could listen to, Josh? Oh, God, the transition. Well, <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, I'll take it. Uh, you can always check out the Podcast Collective, which has got such awesome geeky shows and other themed shows. It's got us as well as the Bad Parenting Podcast. On the Block, No Hope for Humanity, The Coffin Joe Cast, Joel's Own The Sunshine Happy Pants Hour, Dating Baggage, The Internet with Scott the Pool Boy, I Am Salt Lake, Minton Boxcast, Tales from the Hard Side, The Dog and Deuce Show, The Empty Rant Podcast, and The Rad Dad Radio Hour. Which is still a lot of fun to say. Rad Dad. Oh, yeah. He's rad. It's no, no left field sports lounge. Well, at least <laughs> they is? went out on a high note. You know, if you're going to go out, go out on top. Them. They've had far more time online with us mentioning them than they ever did in their entire run. <laughs> That's kind of depressing, actually. <laughs> we, we're keeping hope alive for them. Someday. I don't know what that says. And if you're interested in keeping hope alive, you can check out our archives on iTunes, Blueberry, Stitcher, and TalkShow. What he said. TalkShow. TalkShow. Talk well Talk <laughs> I could not let that opportunity for a transition go by. <laughs> as well as Google Play Podcasts. Yeah, we're all over the place. And where are we at Saturdays uh, on Saturdays at noon? Uh, we are on Geek Life Radio, Saturdays at noon. So if you are out in Antarctica, you can uh, stream us if you have a connection out there. And uh, They have Saturdays in Antarctica? They do, but only until recently, after the Swedes left. 
Norwegians. No, no, no. The Swedes were against Saturdays. Once they oh, left, okay. it was cool. What? <laughs> so, if you'd like to call us and... Uh, These are known anti-Semites, Joel. Yeah. Get your Yikes. shit together. <laughs> um, Anti-Saturdayites? Saturdayites. Well, I'm, I'm, oh. Saturday is the Jewish Sabbath. Oh, well, there you go. And oh. we're here. Um, yes, if you'd like to figure out which part of that was racist, you can give us a call at 708-NOW-RAP. That's 708-669-9727. Yes, and uh, if, you'd like to, if you'd like to email us, it's at 40go14 at gmail.com. We're on Twitter, on Facebook. 40go14 is pretty much a tag all around. Do we have any listener feedback? Uh, we had a tweet, which I am completely underprepared for. Mm. That's all right. Uh, we had a tweet from our uh, last guest host at the end of September. We got one from uh, Martha. Oh, nice. Oh, she was saying, uh, attention, 40 going on 14. She uh, wanted us to see a uh, uh, tweet from Siddhartha Mahanta, who said, uh, Karen Berger is the reason why I got back into comics in college. Oh, very nice. Yeah. So uh, we were supposed to have... Um, and a voice from our past come in and leave us a, leave us a note. But apparently he didn't call us like he said he would. Oh, that happens. Yeah. But, uh, we do have once in a blue moon, we get a comment on the actual webpage. So, uh, astute listener Larry Cudney, uh, he, uh, commented in that he believes that the Coen brothers should do a remake of It's a Mad, 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 Mad World. He says he thinks it would be hilarious. And uh, they're twisted on a great comedy. I think their style would be actually really great for that. I think I'd so watch too. It. Well, they're they're good with the having a thousand people all on at the same time type of thing. Yeah, the kind of mad. I think they handle both madcap and those large ensembles equally well, and that's exactly what that film was. Right. They, they are definitely actors, directors. So right, they can get they can get actors to do just about anything. All right. That'd be badass if it had like people who had the star power of the stars that were in that of their time, right? Oh, like a, a true ensemble, like Ocean's Eleven times three, Ocean's Thirty Three. <laughs> Ocean's Thirty Three. There were a lot of big names in Mad 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 World. So yeah. All right. Excellent I'd suggestion. Yes. Not one that we have any control over, but an awesome suggestion. And if they ever make that movie, we will talk about it. I'll send them a tweet. Mm-hmm. Pat has that kind of power. Yes, he does. In the meantime, is it about that time? It is it about is. that time. This week in music, movies, and TV. Sounded like background Dave's sister. No, background Phil. Background Phil. No, Dave. Yes. Phil doesn't no, have a sister. Phil. No, Phil background doesn't have Phil. a sister. It has to be background Dave. Oh. Dave's not here, man. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Nice. So, first up, music with Joel. Wait. Uh, wait. What's the date? Oh, sorry. July 22nd, 1951. The release of the original Thing from Another World, the black and white version. The one with the Frankenstein monster. Yeah. It gets electrocuted to death. Spoiler alert. Uh, the number one song is Too Young by the golden-throated Nat King Cole. 
followed by Them Their Eyes by Champ Butler, and Come On uh, My House by Rosemary Clooney, who is George Clooney's aunt. True. True. Huh. Golden-throated is such a weird way to describe It's true, but (laughs) it's more like you're describing a bird. (laughs) I never looked down his throat, so I don't know for sure. It's Nat King Cole. He is a golden-throated warbler. (laughs) Warded? Is is Nat King Cole still playing? No, he went south for the winter. Oh. He just comes out. Uh, Verdine White, producer and bassist for Earth, Wind, and Fire, was born on July 25th. Hooray. Surprisingly, he's not dead. Um, on July 29th, the annual Beirut Festival resumes for the first time since World War II, now under the general direction of Wayland Wagner, with an opening concert of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony conducted by Wilhelm Furtwangler, followed by productions of Der Ring des Nebelungen, Nibelungen. Nibelungen? Par- Paris? Parsifal? Yes, that's it. And Die Meistersinger. You can't see this, but I have a really satisfied look on my face after here. <laughs> and what's funny is I took two years of German. Well, it's not like Dering des Nibelungen is actually that obscure, right? Yeah, they made a comic of it, for God's sake. Yeah, Joel. Evert Wagler. <laughs> that's my new, that's my new uh, like, put down. I'm going to call you a Fert Wagler. It translates to Fart Wrangler. No, it doesn't. <laughs> no. Well, my German's a little rusty. It's Sausage Wrangler. <laughs> that'd, be fir- that'd be First Wrangler. No, Fra- Frank and Furt. Never mind. Moving on. <laughs> All right, moving on to movies. <laughs> that was for you, Joel. Margot Martindale, a character actor with 100s of credits and several Emmy nominations to her name, including Dexter, The Firm, Million Dollar Baby, and Justified, was born on June 18th. There's a lot of birth in this episode. Yeah, yeah really I, the, more the way that started, I, I thought she might not make it out of the sentence. I know, right? You know her, uh, too. I mean, if you looked her up, you would recognize her. Uh-oh, here we go. Robert Joseph Flaherty was a filmmaker who directed and produced the first commercially successful feature-length documentary film, Nanook of the North, in 1922. He is considered the father of both the documentary and the ethno- ethnographic 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 I film. Yeah. He is also dead as of July 23rd, 1951. I tried to sneak that one in. That's a wrap. Ethnographic sounds like a German techno band. (laughs) (laughs) This has become tiresome. (laughs) Fert Wangler. (laughs) Known for roles in movies such as Goodwill Hunting, Aladdin, Birdcage, uh, Good Morning Vietnam, Mrs. Doubtfire, and the acronym of the week, TWATG, which of course is the classic Twats Waggle at the Goat. Shit, <laughs> <laughs> you made me snort. <laughs> no, that's uh, I'm not... the world according to Garp, sorry. Oh. You were close. I was close. And Popeye. I'm pretty sure there's some Twats Waggling in Popeye. <laughs> <laughs> Robin Williams was born on July 21st in Chicago as the only child to wealthy parents. Now I'm sad. I'm sure there I were had other no idea people born to rich, wealthy though. His father was an executive, like a high-ranking executive with Exxon, and he grew up in a 30-room mansion. Holy huh. crap. Yeah. I, I'm trying to imagine what it would be like to have Robin Williams as a kid. Right. Imagine him as like eight years old, spazzing out. 
Nowadays, they would have given him medication. Yeah, I was thinking, yeah, if he was born now, they just would have given him a whole bunch of, like, ADHD meds. Yeah, Ritalin. It's a Ritalin cupcake. (laughs) He'd have a Ritalin Pez dispenser. (laughs) I mean, also had more commendy. Also this week, the iconic character actress Edie McClurg is born on July 23rd in Kansas City. She's a righteous dude. Represent. I like her. Everybody likes her. She's She's awesome. She's fantastic. She's from Kansas City. Yeah, buddy. All right. So uh, TV, the top shows are What's My Line, Arthur Godfrey's Talent Scouts, I Love Lucy, and The Red Skelton Show. And I've heard of three of those. You've never heard of Red Skelton? <laughs> <laughs> Who's this Instead Lucy show? Yeah, what is this Lucy show? Arthur Godfrey's Talent Scouts. Who the hell's Arthur Godfrey? I don't know. I just typed it out. I've heard the name, but yeah. He was an American radio and television broadcaster. I think it was just like a a variety show. Yeah, his nickname was the Old Redhead. Like like the 1950s version of American Idol. I'm pretty sure this has come up on the show before, but uh, Red Skelton was a friend of our family. Yeah, yeah, you've mentioned Back in the day. Really? Yeah. Why did I not know that? That's a good oh. question, because he's talked about it on this podcast. I must have been drunk. <laughs> That's going to be my excuse for pretty much everything I've decided. I don't remember. <laughs> Why didn't you get this completed at work? I'm sorry, I was drunk. <laughs> I'm See? sorry, I have a cold. So, <laughs> in the meantime, Phyllis Smith, an American actress best known for playing Phyllis Vance in the U.S. series The Office, was born on July 20th. I don't like the way this is going. She's not dead. Can't, yeah, I, I, say, I know her. I guarantee nothing. Uh, she graduated from the University of Missouri in 1972 with a degree in elementary education, and in the 70s Ooh. and 80s, she worked as a dancer, an NFL cheerleader, and a burlesque performer. What? She said there was no stripping, but I did wear feathers, just like I Grandma. Mean, she, she was young once, Joel. Yeah. Yeah. So, you didn't know that about her? No. That's awesome. Yeah. So, uh, whoop. Yeah. Uh, she was working as a casting associate on The Office when the, she was offered the role of Phyllis, a character created specifically for her. Yeah, they all kind of fell in love with her and decided they wanted to put her on, on the show. All the people that worked behind the scenes. Kind of like um, Aud- Aubrey... Uh, Plaza? Yeah, Aubrey Plaza yeah. on the... On Parks and Rec, yep. Yeah, yeah Jim O'Hare as well. Uh, the Jerry, he actually uh, read for Ron Swanson, and uh, they liked him so much they created the character of Jerry for him. <laughs> you mean Gary? I mean Larry. <laughs> Ooh, hey, Phyllis Smith Young. Search Oh, there she's she is al- in her feathers. Yep. Yeah, she's also pretty well known for her voice work in Inside Out. Yep. Oh. That paragraph was long enough, so I'd didn't put that in there yeah she right did, she did sad didn't she yep yeah, she actually got some awards for it oh very nice uh also in this year wonder woman's linda carter was born july 24th man such a staple of our youth S- staple of something what hmm you're gonna try and make staples sexy aren't you <laughs> don't don't you have any <laughs> Not sexy! Not sexy! I think Brazil just exploded all over this podcast. No, you click Linda Carter's official website. I'm like, okay, click that. Apparently she sings now. I did not know that. (laughs) 
On cruise liners, probably, or something. More than likely, I mean. All right, moving on to sports. Um, On July 18th, Jersey Joe Walcott becomes the oldest boxer to win the heavyweight championship at 27 years old. A record held until George Foreman knocked out Michael Moore in 1994 to become a champion at 45 years old. That should say 37, not 27. (laughs) I I was like halfway through the sentence, but I'm like, wait a minute, that's not right. (laughs) That's not old. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Paul Douglas Doug Collins, born July 28th, is a retired Mm. NBA player and coach who was the first overall pick of the 1973 draft and a three-time All-Star he has coached four teams in the NBA and currently serves as the NBA and as an NBA analyst on ESPN. He was on the USA basketball team at the 1972 Munich Olympics. I'm sure you guys are familiar with those. Most famously known for uh, the death of all the Israeli athletes. Yeah. The terrorism. Yeah. Um, anyway, that was also the site of what, what actually would have been the news story of that Olympics um, if it wasn't for the terrorist attack. Because uh, the U.S. Men's Olympic basketball team, um, when we were still amateur, you know, none of the pros were allowed to play. We were still undefeated up until 1972 um, in, in, in the entire history of Olympic basketball. And we were expected to remain undefeated in the gold medal match against the Russians, against the Soviet Union. And um, Doug Collins is the one who hit two free throws at the last second. And there was like... Six seconds left on the clock, to, and they had a 50 to 49 lead. And three different times they said, "Oh, there was some kind of error with the clock." Oh, you know, like the Russians came down and they didn't they didn't score. It was an error error with the clock. Started over, put six more seconds on the clock. <laughs> they start over. Oh, there was an error with blah 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 because they, they didn't score. And then they you know they they end up getting a layup on the third time, and then they're like, "Okay, that one counts. We're good." <laughs> and and we we lost for the first time ever, fifty-one to fifty, and the U.S. team refused to accept the silver medals in protest. It was it was just I mean it was the most blatant form of corruption that you'll ever see in a sports game. Yeah, that sounds kind of shady. Yeah, I mean just straight up, they're like like you no know, game over. They're like no no not game over. We need to redo the last three seconds because reasons. <laughs> yeah. And that happened. That happened twice until they finally scored. That's fucked up. Yep. Sounds like Pat's dating life. Okay. Uh-huh. What? Well, yeah. Aw. Well, at we least we got a revenge in hockey later. You know. Yeah. There's a, the difference is they scored. Aw. The fourth Test match between England and South Africa took place July 26th through the 31st. This is. I truncated it a little bit, but this is pretty much just cut and paste, so I'm just going to read it, and it's going to sound strange, because it's written in, in it's written in British. Cricketese. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's written in cricket. <laughs> Bowlers were the slaves in, in a tedious defense-themed game that was restricted to four days when heavy rain washed out the fifth day. On a pitch with no life and little prospect of dismissing their opponents cheaply, the fielding sides thought principally of keeping down the runs, and a few and few of the batsmen showed willingness to take risks. <laughs> As a result, the scoring rate through the four full days in which 1,130 runs came from 508 overs at a wicket cost of 56.5 was no higher than... Ah! What the hell? <laughs> No, the, the screen totally just moved on me. Sorry. Uh, something, <laughs> an, an automated task popped up and screwed me up. Sorry. As a result, the scoring rate 
as a result, the scoring rate through four full days in which 1,130 runs came from 508 overs at a wicket cost of 56.5 was no higher than 47 runs per hour. Stop it. Two, two attempts and Pat finally gets it right. Oh, sounds familiar. Ooh. All right. Notwithstanding the dull play, they sold out on three of the four days and the total attendance figures of 116,000 with receipts of over 26,000 pounds reached the highest in any test between the two countries up to that point. That would suck if you're like the match of the century. Everyone has paid all this money for the tickets and it's just boring for four days. Yep. That's apparently what happened. But According to the report, the weather was so nice that most people didn't care. <laughs> That's a sticky wicket if I ever heard of one. Fesh la moche. Ferme la bouche. Cherchez la femme. Voulez-vous coucher avec moi? C'est ça. C'est ça. C'est ça. All right. You made Pat become French. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, crap. Now, I just, I heard that entire sentence that you were reading in, uh, Howard Cosell. <laughs> the fourth test match between England and South Africa took place... One of them speaks no English at all. The other one learned English from Howard Cosell. You tell me which worse. <laughs> <laughs> the once great Lane Maya. All right, we are back, and we are going to talk about The Thing 1982. So Yeah, we mentioned the original 1951 movie, but that's not going to be our focus. Uh, we are mostly looking at John Carpenter versus the prequel, uh, made more recently in, what was it, 2011? 2011, 2011 right. 11, so, yep. so uh, first week of winter in 1982, an American research base is greeted by an alien force that can assimilate anything it touches. It's up to the members to stay alive and be sure of who is human and who has become one of the things. Now, yeah, I know, right? Uh, so this uh, initially is a a novella. Novella, yeah, it was By it was John an, Campbell a, Jr. written under the pen name Don A. Stewart. What does the A stand for? Anyone know? Junior. Alien. <laughs> Alien. I don't think you know how initials work. Oh. <laughs> anyway, it was called Who Goes There. Um, it was first published in the August 1938 Astounding Science Fiction. Yes. I guess that's probably what, like a uh, anthology. I guess. Yeah. It, well, it's like the old um, uh, anthology magazines. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and then they made it into a 1951 American black and white horror film produced by Howard Hawks Winchester's Pictures Corporation. This is an RKO joint and uh, directed by Christian Nyby. The film, uh, this original 1951, uh, has stars Douglas Spencer, Kenneth Toby, Margaret Sheridan, Robert Cornthwaite. And uh, James Arness played the thing. The, yep. the famous James Arness. Marshal Matt Dillon from Gunsmoke. So he played the thing. This is very much a 1950s black and white guy in a monster suit. Uh, but uh, fast forward a couple decades, and June 25th, as we had said, 1982, the thing opened up in 840 theaters, and it was the number eight movie of the week. It remained in the top ten for three weeks, but unfortunately, this was during the same time when E.T. was out, and people were a little bit more with friendly extraterrestrials, <laughs> and also was released on the same day as Ridley Scott's Blade Runner. Well, yeah, and in its own time, it was kind of panned by critics. It really uh, was. I mean, people were not, I mean, it was. I think it was just too dark for the time. 
And I also think that the special effects techniques, uh, as awesome as they were, they were so gory and so over the top that at the time, a lot of reviewers commented that they thought that the special effects and the splatter or the body horror stuff detracted from the story. And a lot of them said, there's nothing here aside from gore. And it, it, as... Yeah, I'm sorry, how... I- I was just gonna say I agree with you. It got lumped in with like you know Friday the Thirteenth and things like that. You know, it was just a, as a slasher pick. Like, right, and I think the reason attitudes changed is because those sorts of special effects techniques became more commonplace, and once it wasn't shocking anymore, people were able to pay attention as oh yeah, there's actually quite a bit of suspense going on here, which is why I think the longer it went on, the better the reviews got. Right, right, and it picked up definitely picked up a cult following as a lot of his movies do. Um, this actually spawned in, uh, from the 82 movie in, uh, 91, there was a Dark Horse, uh, miniseries called The Thing from Another World, which I have, and picks up where, uh, they get rescued, and the thing winds up in South America, which is an awesome, you know, uh, was a good, great comic, and, uh, also had a video game sequel called The Thing. And this was cool. It came out in 2002, and I think the problem with this one was, ha, thing, uh, was that it was too, um, it was ahead of its time. In the game, you had to, you had your team of explorers, and everyone had a trust level. So if someone's trust level dropped too low, they would think that you were a thing and attack you. Mm-hmm. So you played a wow. main character, yeah. So you basically had to make sure that you made made sure everyone's trust levels were at good points, so that nobody would, you know, nobody would freak out and try and kill you. But at the same time, someone out there is a thing, and they might just sprout six heads on you. <laughs> and it might be different from playthrough to playthrough, so you never know who you can trust. It, yeah, it hit a lot of the big themes of what the thing is all about. Yeah, it really did. I, I enjoyed it. Um, I just think for. 2002, it was for the Xbox, the original Xbox, and I just think video games had not reached the point where that was a... They could have done it a lot better if they had waited, but I don't think it would be... You know, it was going to be a big thing around for now. So, so directed by John Carpenter of Big Trouble in Little China. Uh, Give me some help, Joel. What are some of the the other ones? Halloween. Halloween, that's true. Uh, Escape from Uh, New York. They live, escape from LA, ghosts of Mars. Yeah, that's the true. Vampire movie he made. Yeah, vampires, vampires, Ugh. and also who can for, who can forget Monkey Pudding Face? That was a classic. Yeah, apparently it was a TV series short, which I have to dig that up. Um, and Steel Magnolias. Don't forget the Ward. That Wait, is what? From 2010 <laughs> and is amazing. None of you caught that. No, I caught it. I just chose to pretend it never happened. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. So, directed by John Carpenter, written by the Bill Lancaster, who we all know from all the Bad News Bears movies. Huh. Yep. And The Thing. That's his entire collection right there. He wrote four Bad News Bears movies and this. So. He didn't do Steel Magnolias. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you got I- me. I thought I Mike was up. fucking around, but he's right. Lancaster just has done the thing in Bad News Bears. I know, right? That's all. That's his whole. That's his whole thing, right there. Bad News it's Bears. Not a bad weird trajectory. <laughs> How do you veer from Bad News Bears just to write this? I don't know. Maybe Working you with Walter Matthau. Yeah, you hang out with Walter Matthau and you drink enough of those uh, cocktails that he was making. Yeah, boiler maker in a can. Yeah. 
Um, so this starred Kurt Russell as R.J. McCready, Wilford Brimley as Blair, T.K. Carter as Knowles, David Clennon as Palmer, Keith David as Childs, Richard Dysart as Copper, uh, Charles Hallahan as Norris, Peter Maloney, George Bennings, Richard Masur as Clark, Donald Moffat as Gary, Joel Paulus as Fuchs, Nathan Waits as Windows, and Norbert Weisner as Norwegian, and Larry J. Franco as Norwegian passenger with rifle. That's a little bit extra for that. It's like, uh, you know, getting dressing on your salad. And <laughs> Jed mm. as dog thing. So Wait, you get a lot of dressing with no salad or salad with no dressing. My kids do. That's they don't. They don't like dressing on the salad. Seriously. <gasps> seriously. What? Not even blue cheese. Mind, okay. I know, right? Um. So we've got. One really big star and two relatively large character actors in Kurt Russell, Wilford Brimley, and Keith David. Mm-hmm. And then a bunch of uh, no-names. I don't know. There were a few uh, other, like... Uh, Richard Mauser is a name. Yeah. I, I, yeah. Moffat is, is kind of known. There, there are people who you would recognize, like Charles Hallahan's in a bunch of stuff, too. Mm-hmm. But, like, yeah. the people who you're going to pick out of a crowd are probably those three. I always like to Kurt think Russell that... Has- R.J. McCready is, um, the they're like his, the uncle to the guy from Big Trouble in Little China. Like there's this Him whole his family. Norwegian sombrero. Yeah, oh, his hat was. That's where he got all his power from. Was his hat. <laughs> <laughs> that's how he managed to survive. Everything came from his magic hat. But uh, some trivia on this one is uh, John Carpenter. He considers this to be f- the first part of his Apocalypse trilogy. Uh, followed by Prince of Darkness and then In the Mouth of Madness. Both are pretty apocalyptic, but I don't think as good as this. Uh, I agree. Yeah, In the Mouth of Madness starts out so great and and so meh. Yeah. It ends with a bunch of Muppets. <laughs> yeah, basically, the, the uh, things the critics said about this were kind of true about In the Mouth of Madness. Mm. Yeah, big uh, Cthulhu Muppets is what I've called them. Right. I've never seen it. No? It's worth one watch. Yeah. Uh, this movie has also become the, Mars. become the culture, uh, part of the culture in Ar- Antarctica. It's a tradition that all British Antarctic research stations watch the thing as part of their midwinter feast and celebration had held every June 21st, <laughs> which I'm sure does great for morale. <laughs> uh, the female voice of MacReady's computer was performed uncredited by the wife of John Carpenter, actress Adrienne Barbeau. Oh. Yeah. Which is the only female to appear in the whole movie. Yep. I thought she sounded sexy. And then this is also the first of John Carpenter's films which he did not score himself. The original choice composer was originally was uh, Jerry Goldsmith, but it passed on to Ennio Morricone, who composed... Ennio Morricone. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, who did yeah, he a, just finally got a, a recognition for his work last year. Uh, Hateful Eight? Yeah. Right. Um, but yeah, he, uh, you may know him from, uh, Once Upon a Time in the West, Django, uh, Django, I'm sorry, Django Returns, uh, God, what else did he do? Every Everything. spaghetti western ever. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he is. And Lolita, the 97 version. Oh, yeah. Bugsy. Mm-hmm. The, the, the man, uh, like, if there's a great score out there that isn't, uh, oh, I'm just, I can't believe I'm blanking on Star isn't John Hansen. Williams. It's probably uh, uh, Ennio Morricone. Basil Polidorus. Right. He did so, the Conan movies. Yeah. Maloney. But, uh, yeah, 
John Carpenter did a lot of the music for his other other movies. In fact, in the I have I got the deluxe edition of Big Trouble in Little China, and there's actually a music video in it of John Carpenter play like featured in a music video, and it is terrible. And there's a really interesting story about Marconi and Carpenter when he was hired because uh, Marconi was on set and was working on different scores for the films. And Carpenter starts scoring scenes himself. And Marconi's like, why did you bring me here if you're just going to do it yourself? And Carpenter said, I've been a fan of your work all this time. You're my inspiration. And Marconi basically said, I got this. And he did a couple of different scores. One, a John Carpenter-inspired electronic score, which, of course, was the one that was used. Nice. What a fertvangler. <laughs> Jesus. Pat, Pat still laughed. Oh, well. Okay. But, uh, <laughs> you said that disappointed. It's like, crap, somebody laughed. Yeah. <laughs> and it was Pat. Um, but no, so has this been the first watch for any of us? Nope. Oh, no. Okay, good. I mean, it's not even the first time we talked about this on the show. And, and that was it when, um, I started, I, I said to, to the Suzanne that we were going to do the thing. She's like, haven't you done that already? And I realized it was because we did the, uh, Kurt Russell show. And then I watched the, watched the thing again and then said, Hey, maybe I should check out the sequel. Uh, out of the, again, a question out of the three of us, how many of us watched it in movie chronological order? Wait, do you mean, you mean, Release dates? No, I'm talking about like in order of what happens in the movie. I did. I did too. Me too. I uh, I went the other way. Okay. Usually now, do. All but of I've us... watched. I've seen both of them before, so it didn't matter to me what order I saw them in. Right. Do you think it added or added to the uh, to the movies by watching them in storyline chronological order? Absolutely. In my opinion, it did. Absolutely. Same. I mean, it, it's kind of interesting to watch the second movie after, you know, and, and, you know, just piece it together. And that was my perspective on it, is like, you know where all the pieces end up, especially when you realize their attention to detail. And like, knowing where everything has to be in place for the end of the film was fascinating for me watching the prequel last. Yeah. See, and for me, since I, I I've never been a huge fan of, of the spoiler alert of the original um, and having seen the, the, the prequel and feeling kind of meh about it, I actually appreciated them more watching them as one whole because I watched them back to back in one evening and it made one kind of epic, you know, three and a half hour movie instead of, you know, two pieces that kind of didn't fit together as well because I wasn't as familiar with them as you guys are. You see, and I, when I was a kid, this was one of my favorite movies. I watched this movie probably around once a month or so. Um, I've seen this movie a lot, so watching the prequel didn't exactly it it didn't matter to me because I mean I I could already watch it with that eye of detail, knowing what they were you know how true they were being mm-hmm. to the sets and everything all because I I mean I've seen it so many times it's still fresh in my mind, so it didn't matter to me that I didn't watch the eighty two movie first. See, and it's I didn't int- know how closely they were tied together. I mean, yeah, the, the, like the set work is just great. I mean, they. They nailed everything. Like the way the way the place looked at the beginning of the 1982 movie, and the way the the in the end of the, the 2011 version, they did a, a great job. I mean, every, every every death, every explosion, every hole, every whatever was all explained in the plot. It was pretty pretty good. And Josh, what Josh. were you going to say? 
Yeah, I was going to say, it's interesting that Pat said that when he was a kid, this was such a big deal to him because I came at it from the other perspective. When I first watched this, uh, one of my first John Carpenter films was another remake. It was uh, his take on The Blob. And I hated The Blob, and uh, my distaste for that carried over into this. Oh, no. Wow. Because uh, on the surface, they're very similar things. you got a classic black-and-white horror film and then a super special effects gore splatter remake. And I I think as an adult, I still believe The Blob missed the point and is not a good movie. Well, it also made the mistake of casting Kevin Dillon instead of Kurt Russell. Sure. And that is something that I think needs to be done all the time. Any movie made by John Carpenter needs to have Kurt Russell in it. They just I think my opinions evolved at the same pace as the critics did. As I got older and older, I've come to appreciate it more. And in the last 15 years, it's grown to be one of my favorites. Yeah, I this is one of my favorite movies. I enjoyed watching it. I watched it with Suzanne, who hasn't seen it in a long while, and Katie, who hasn't seen it at all. And I think one of my favorite portions of it was watching th- when I know what's coming up and just watching them. Yeah. And the biggest jump I got. And one of the things I like about this is that they there are jump scares in it. But Carpenter does such a good job of setting you up for them. And the, the scene that I like the best on this is actually the blood test scene. Oh, yeah. Because. Oh, Sure. Yeah, I mean, because it's like, and I was explaining to Kate, because watching them, both of them, I mean, just bounced out of their seat when they when the blood jumped out of the Petri dish. <laughs> and I was talking to Katie about it. I'm like, look, this is what he did. I'm like, McCready has this idea on how it's going to work. He tests his blood. He knows he's not an alien. He tests the next guy's blood. He knows he's not an alien. Now that we got the two dead guys, they're not aliens. And you can tell in McCready's face, he's like, well, shit. I don't think this is working. And he has that, that moment makes you of a murderer. Right. He's got that moment of doubt where he's not sure if this is going to work. And, and, they, and they played it off so well in the script, too, that like you start doubting it, too. Exactly. And that's when the, you know, then he, then the blood jumps out of the thing. And then. Because <laughs> you're almost in your head. You're like, well, nothing's going to happen again. And then boom. Wow. Yep. <laughs> no way. It can, no way. Nothing's going to happen five times in a row. <laughs> And the shit hits the fan. Oh man, that and that scene where they're screaming tied to the couch. Yeah, poor windows. Oh, oh, I felt bad for him. Right, I liked that character so much. He's like, get a hold of somebody. He's like, man, there's nobody for thousands of miles, man. <laughs> it, it caught me when the blood thing happened. I wasn't, I wasn't sure when it was going to happen because I'd only seen this once before, and it, it literally caught me off guard. And you know, you guys talking about being one of your favorites, I just read an article and reposted it on uh, Facebook here in one of the horror sites that I, I frequent. They did their top 50 horror films of all time, and this was number one. Yeah. Which oh, yeah. I disagree with, but it, it was there, and I thought that was interesting. Well, you it deserves would... a spot in the top 10 easily. Yeah, and you'd be wrong. <laughs> yeah, that scene where they're doing the blood test is also the payoff for something they've been doing from the beginning. Is there's a whole lot of misdirection where you see the dog with various characters, and if you're paying attention, trying to figure out, because it's really easy to know, even if it's your first time viewing, that the dog is the thing. Mm-hmm. And they very carefully show the dog visiting a bunch of characters who, in the blood test scene, are revealed as human, who you've been suspecting the whole movie. Right. And it's, and you get that one scene in the very beginning where the dog walks into somebody's room and you see a silhouette, 
but you're not really sure who that person is. The silhouette's thrown up on the wall that you just can't pick it out. And they well, keep, you, you know, they, they keep setting it up with everybody saying, you know, oh, watch Clark, watch, you know. Right, right. He's in contact with Clark. He wander. He, they make a point of showing him walk into the kitchen uh, while the cook, I'm uh, Nals, Nals, ha- uh, Nals has his back to the dog. And then they cut away real quick. So the whole time, because I'd forgotten who was human and who was uh, a thing by the end. And then, by the time this time I watched it, there's a very subtle thing that happens at one point too, where when when they're talking about you know uh, who had, who had access to the keys when the blood got ruined, mm-hmm. a subtle you, thing. That that one scene when Bennings gets killed. Remember, Windows comes into the room and he just stops talking because he sees Bennings in the corner getting attacked. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. If you listen really carefully, you can hear Windows drops the keys, and then oh. he runs off. <laughs> but were those the same keys? It doesn't matter. There's a set of keys. Well, that's true. He had borrowed them. He, he borrowed them from Cooper, so they're probably the same keys. You know. Uh, so, so anybody had access to those keys. But it's just one of those little tiny details in this movie that, if you're not really paying attention, you don't hear it. You know. Yeah, I wouldn't have caught it. So here is. Um, in the very beginning, if you just happened to be Norwegian, the entire movie was ruined for you. <laughs> right. <laughs> because they, the helicopter lands and the Nordic guy that gets out of the airplane is screaming this in, Nord- in Nordic, get the hell away from that thing. It's not a dog. It's some sort of thing. It's imitating a dog. It isn't real. Get away, you idiots. And then he shoots <laughs> the gun. So if you're I, i'm wondering if this was released over in Nor- in norway if everyone were just like well shit you know <laughs> I think, why are the americans I think they loving this thing in, in norway they changed them to something else and they did a different language okay good good cuz i'd hate to think of all those norwegians disappointed by this right even if you know the twist like the fact that the dog is an alien isn't that big a deal the horror that you realize the Americans don't know the language he's talking. They're not getting the warning, so this is going down regardless. That's the point. Yep. Like, even if you were bilingual, I don't think the movie's wrecked for you. And, and this movie is all about suspense anyway. It's not about a mystery. It's about, you know, it, you know it, it's not the mystery of, of what is the dog. The mystery is who is an alien and who isn't. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Who's a doppelganger? Yeah, who, who you're right, is You're the right thing. about that. It wouldn't ruin the movie, but it would definitely... Put you on the put you on the know how or the not, not the know how the... right. It's yeah. not like the end of the Sixth Sense if that was at the beginning in a different language and right. You're like, right. Oh, I gotta tell mind. you though that when that when the dog went into the kennel and it just sat there, I don't like, like that part. <laughs> it's terrible. Yeah, that's a, that's a very very sad part. When yeah, you... when all the dogs die. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean that, and that is just sort of from the very beginning. Uh, the practical effects in this are so good, and he uses such a great um, – he uses shadows so well in this movie. Especially when you think about the fact that it was 34 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, their safety standards weren't up to snuff. <laughs> yeah. We talked about thing. that in the Kurt Russell show, how Kurt Russell was very nearly killed when they used a little too much gas blowing up the set. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, and another stuntman almost died during one of the fire scenes. Mm-hmm. Not to, well. I mean, the whole. I mean, exploding things was kind of like the theme of the movie too. So, but uh, well, there was genuine yeah. fear on some of their faces. They weren't acting. <laughs> yeah, right. Because they realized they might actually die. Yeah, it was just like what's her name's face in Aliens when the chest burster popped out the first time and nobody told her what was going to happen. Oh yeah, that's another great expression. But um, another great jump scare 
in, in watching it had to have been when they're doing the defibrillator. Oh man, that's that that's probably my favorite. That scene because because that was the moment I remember when I was a kid. That was the the first time I saw this movie was on VHS. Um, I didn't get to see it in the theater. My dad bought it at no oh, somewhere I don't remember where, and he we watched it together. And when he, that that was the first moment when when as a kid I remember thinking, "Holy shit, this is bad." <laughs> <laughs> And that because if you can't even like, like like if you could die trying to save somebody's life, this is not good. <laughs> yeah, and well, that that and was a part. That, oh, sorry, Josh. I was just gonna say no one's watching Norris at that point because he is totally in the background. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, and that. I mean, again, what again? My favorite thing is like when I've seen a movie of this many times, being able to. Uh, I just watch like because it's the first time Katie saw it with the defibrillator scene. It was great because like her knees immediately come right up the floor, you know, and she's curled up into a little ball in the chair, and she's just like, you know, what I, uh, you know, I asked her what her favorite part was, and she said the you know the defibrillator scene was it because it was just so visceral. It was great yeah, and just so unexpected. Well, I think the part that always still gets me is when the one guy's head comes off and grows legs. That that's the, probably the best special effects part, and and the most just what the fuck you know. Well, yeah, moment look, of the whole thing. Look at the line, right? Too. Uh, I, also, I love the look on on. Uh, was it, I think it was Windows when he's when he sees the spider head walking away. He's oh come on, <laughs> <laughs> what is that? <laughs> it's that great John Carpenter moment. You know the same thing from Big Trouble. He's like, what the hell is that? Yeah. Because uh, I mean, you got to think like if if you were in that particular moment and and you saw that thing, that's probably how you would react. Yeah. What, Josh? I just wanted to talk a little bit about Copper because this time around watching, I appreciated from the beginning that Copper was right, all of his actions were correct, and then they put him in a spot where the thing could ambush him and take him over, and he just got totally boned. He, oh, he yeah. was. I think he was kind of your your. Uh, Stereotypical Dungeons and Dragons lawful stupid paladin. <laughs> well, well did- I think he knew it's like no matter what, even if we all die, if I do X, Y, and Z, the world is saved. Yeah, right. I'm not saying he did anything wrong. I'm just you. Know. Did any of you? I I found the uh, PDF of the original story. Did any of you read it? I did no, not I didn't get, get a chance, chance to. to. I downloaded no. it. Okay, because in in the original story, which is for 1930s Pulp Fiction is really really visceral um you know it's it doesn't lean towards the 1950s uh black and white movie where you've got the guy in the rubber suit you've got literally the thing is morphing and the dogs are being absorbed and that whole thing it's it leans more towards the 1982 version in the story than it does to the 1950s version uh but copper and um mccready are are the i guess the best way to put it would be the would be the heroes of it so it's like those two are the ones working together to try and stop this thing. And there's, I, I don't want to spoil it because the, while it's, it is the same story, the reading the, the story is, itself is just a great singular read. It's only like maybe like 20 pages long. It's just like I said, a short magazine type thing, but it is a great read either way. Well, and Copper having been uh, basically isolated for going crazy because he had to stop it at any cost. And then being turned into the big bad at the end, it's a pretty cool twist. No, no, no. You're thinking of Blair. Blair is the one who got. Oh, you're right. I I said Copper. I meant Blair. Yeah. 
Okay, the, <clears throat> that's why I would, okay, I, I realized we were talking about two different guys, and I thought I was the... Okay. No, no, there's, t- there's two doctors. The, yeah, Copper's the, the gray-haired guy with the, that had the six-shooter. No, yeah. Josh is Co- the no, Copper is Clark. Hair, so. you're, you're Wait, with the, the guy with the six-shooter is Clark. That's no, Clark Rick. is the dog guy. No, oh no, Gary. That's... Donald Moffat was Gary. He was the guy with the six shooter. Uh, yeah, that's right. Gary, Copper yeah. was the guy who did the defibrillator and got his arms bit off. Yeah, yeah. Copper was the really brass, brash guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Gary was the guy that I was thinking was lawful stupid. Yeah, and this whole time I was talking about Blair uh, being yeah, okay, the guy. Yeah, yeah, you're right. I just that. mixed up the name. See, well, he was right. All mixed he, up all the names. You fuckers would have yeah. been morphed in a heartbeat because you can't keep track of this shit. <laughs> I think yeah, I think really... I think Norris is the creature. Who the hell is Norris? <laughs> I don't know. Is he the black guy? <laughs> You're definitely right, though. Blair Blair saw what was happening, and he did everything in his power to keep it from happening. Regardless, you know, he he pretty much knew we're all pretty much dead. But let's just keep this thing from getting anywhere else. Mm-hmm. So they lock him in a room where the thing can ambush him, and no one will ever know. Yep. Well, I, and here's the question: They locked him in there. Was he? When did he get changed? It's very clear when he got changed, because as soon as he's the thing, he stops wearing his glasses. Oh, that's right. And, and that's one of the things I love about this movie, is the tiny little details like that. And that's what saves you. I mean, did anybody else notice, uh, going back to uh, Copper, how many times have you watched this, did you notice that Copper has a nose ring? What? Yeah. Well, I, I noticed it this time. Noticed, but... Yeah. And that was the one reason I knew that Copper was uh, was still human because I watched him 2011-82, and in the 2011 they keep going about how the uh, the thing cannot duplicate artificial uh, metal or any sort of artificial things. That's why fillings are found and that sort of thing in the 2011 okay. version. And as long as Copper still had that nose ring in, I knew he was still human. So many little details like that. Mm-hmm. And, and and then... Oh, go ahead. I was going to say, and I've seen this movie easily two dozen times. So I and I never noticed that Copper had a nose ring. I don't feel bad for not noticing then. <laughs> yeah, if you've only seen it a couple times. Like, I, I noticed it only this time because it kind of stood out. It seemed sort of unusual mm-hmm. for the time. Yeah. Now, so, here's, here's a question for you guys. The ending... The final battle. Uh, that's what I was going to say is yeah. like it's time to talk about the ending. I think. Yeah the the final battle. Everything's setting up all the all the uh, the dynamite being set up everywhere. I was actually kind of let down by it because I was expecting this battle between the Blair monster and McCready in the tunnels underneath, and I got fuck you two and throw a dynamite and run away. Uh, that was a function of them running out of money. Oh, you were supposed to get what you wanted, but uh, the monster was so big that they only had enough money to show small parts of it for short periods of time on film. Hmm. And I'll, I'll be honest with you, and this is a bit of a like, I don't know. Maybe maybe I should wait till the next what we're talking about the next movie to, to say this. But all right, you know what? I'll just say I like the ending that they left it because the whole movie is all about mood and ambiance and suspense and 
and it carries on all the way to the end. I think it would have honestly kind of cheapened the movie a little bit if there had been like a big showdown and he beats it and and I've saved the world and blah, blah, blah. I think it's true to the story and to the feel and the emotion of the movie itself that at the end you really don't know. I mean, Carpenter himself has said, I'm not really going to say, you know, if either one of them is the alien, if either one of them is human, it's pretty much up to the viewer. Yeah, we glossed over that uh, in talking about the Blair monster. After the Blair monster, you've got two characters left, one MIA, and the monster may be probably dead. Nalls is nowhere to be seen. Uh, Childs, at the beginning of the battle, ran off on his own. Mm-hmm. And at the last minute, Nalls is still MIA, but McCready and Childs are sitting the generator's been missing. No one knows. We are, it's never revealed where the generator went. It but they're never well. going to be warm enough to live till spring. The monster might still be out there, and you've got two men sitting there looking at each other, mm-hmm. wondering if the other one could possibly have been assimilated. Right. And, and Okay, go ahead, Joel. I was just going to say, and then they both agree to just sit there and hang out for a bit and basically freeze to death. Well, and my take on it is uh, you've got McCready offers Childs a drink, and Childs takes the drink, and McCready starts laughing. Now, some people have said, oh, he filled the glass with gasoline, and because Childs took it, he's obviously a monster. I don't buy that. I, I think that's a shitty way to interpret the ending. I think that really the reason McCready's laughing is he realizes that after all they've sacrificed – Everybody that has died, and they are going to die there, they're back where they started. Two guys looking at each other, not trusting each other. Mm-hmm. It went full circle. Yep. And when credits rolled... <laughs> now, now, Katie, being my daughter, is a, is a Kurt Russell fan. She likes Big Trouble nice. in Little China. She likes those, you know... So, fade out, credits roll in, and she's like, What? <laughs> <laughs> like, there you go. That's the ending. She's like, no, 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 no. Someone's got to win. You can't have it. No, they just lay there. They die. You know, now, if you've now in the comic series, they pick up right from that point where Childs actually gets rescued by a um, a naval submarine that actually heard the SOSs that uh, Windows was sending out earlier, but was unable to respond because of the storms. So they get saved, and then they wind up in South America, and the thing gets loose in South America. Because they, Childs is definitely the thing in the comics, and that's completely non-canonical. Oh, it totally is. Yeah. But virtually every uh, property that tries to pick up where this left off asserts that Childs is the thing and McCready's human. Right. Because everybody loves... Kurt Russell. Kurt yeah. Russell, yeah. Right. I mean, a lot of people love Keith David as well. Oh, yeah. Not not to the same level. Definitely not. Oh, we're never going to have a Keith David show, for for instance. I don't know. After that nine-minute fight and they live. <laughs> True. Oh. But plus, he's he's like one of the key characters in the uh, Saints Row series. Not not like a character he played, but Keith David himself. Yeah, he is. <laughs> I God, didn't know that. I love I Saints Row. Um. But yeah, that, uh, from the thing from, and that picks up from the thing from another world comic strip, which is awesome. Uh, but yeah, no, this is, I, I think if they decide, well, I know it's been 2011, but if they decide to ever remake this, they have to stick with practical effects. 
I, th- I think that is one thing that just made this movie in, you know, we're going to talk about the one 2011 soon, but I think that's one thing that made this movie is the fact that everything looked, they did a great job on those effects. Well, and, and they have one to make sure of, they use the Betamax as well in the remake too. Right. One of the reasons they did the 2011 as a prequel is that horror film buffs, the sort of people that would make, remake this, believe that this was practically a perfect movie. So I think if we see any more stuff, it's less likely to be a remake and more likely to try to do a sequel. Yeah, I I, I agree with that. I wouldn't mind a trilogy. Yeah, and you could do it and say, okay, we're not going to ruin the original ending by telling you whether McCready or Childs was the thing. Regardless, they're nowhere to be seen. Uh, maybe their bodies were burned, whatever. But so long as a couple cells of the thing survives, it can still start assimilating again. Mm-hmm. Well, and- or you could even take the uh, the route that some other franchises have and go before the 2011 prequel. Right. Now And get the, the ship going yeah, Tell the history of the thing itself. That would be odd, considering that they'd established that the ship probably crashed like 100,000 years ago. Mm-hmm. So there shouldn't be right. any humans it's all in Antarctica right. at that time. Um, one of the, Stop making sense. Yeah. <laughs> one of the things I like about this one is, like we were talking about the nose ring, it's the little things. My my fav- again my favorite moment of, of the of it is when Katie noticed that the uh now I hate to, you know I hate to talk but it's it's there's so much fun in watching a movie like this with somebody who's never seen it you know because you know what's coming and like when uh, I forgot the name of the bald guy Bennings uh, yeah Bennings when Windows leaves Bennings when they're when they're in that uh, office and Windows lifts up the the blanket and looks at the frozen remains of the two face thing covers it back up, turns and starts talking to Bennings, and then it moves <laughs> under the blanket. And then she's just like, oh, God! <laughs> like, nobody... And, and, and both of them are back-to-back. You know, they're, they've are they got their back to it, so you know that it's alive, and you're just like, oh, crap, what's happened? What? You know, it's just there's so much fun in a movie like this that's got so many shocks to it and so many little details. So are we? I'm just going to assume for all four of us, it's thumbs up on this one. Yes, uh, I, I'm not going to assume that. It is for me, and it sounds like it is for you and Pat. Uh, Joel, how, how have your feelings evolved on it? If, if have they? It's still not anywhere close to where it is for you guys. Uh, it's just not my bag, but I enjoyed it, and I would I would consider watching it again at some point. But yeah, it's not something that I strive to go put back in anytime soon. Okay, to open the bag so, that I'm thumbs probably up, yes. going to regret opening, what would you say is the number one horror movie of the 80s, if not this movie? The Exorcist. Oh, wait, 80s? Isn't that what that list was from the 80s? Yeah, you're right. That was the 80s, wasn't it? Uh, well, let me think about that while you guys talk about because I, I, I still give it a thumbs up. I just... Uh, okay, well, it gets a thumbs up, which is probably enough for us to go to the break. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. Joel, you think, think about it. I think we're done with this, but... Uh, when we come back, maybe we'll get the, Joel's answer to the question of his take on the uh, best movie of the 80s, and then we'll immediately move on to talking about the prequel. Right on. All right, so uh, we'll be back in just a little bit. All right, we are back, and we're going to talk about The Thing... 2011 prequel. 
No. But first, Joel has an answer to the question, Ooh, doesn't yeah. he? Yeah. What's What's your favorite '80s horror? What's your number one? Uh, that would be Stanley Kubrick's 1988 master or 1980 masterpiece, The Shining. Huh. That's a solid pick. I, I like the film thing better, but it's a good pick. The Shining I was, is I was brilliant. To tell you you're wrong, but I don't know. I do like the thing better, but The Shining is good. I would uh, know. That, Unless you're Steven. You've never King. seen The Shining? I've never seen The Shining. What? <laughs> yep. It's one that where it's not particularly faithful to the book, but they're both awesome in different ways. Right. I, I, think, I, I think I just had a breakthrough on what, what the difference between my upbringing and Mike's. I was at the movies all the time, and Mike was playing console games. Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> I think that's I think that's the divide right there. <laughs> yep, that's it right there. You were at the movies. I was playing video games. Yep. Yeah, and when we combine our powers, <laughs> it makes sense. We become a bucket of water, <laughs> and I'll form the head. <laughs> Wait, all right. I'll be the fruit vandler. The fruit fondler. You said, you said give wrong, Josh. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll form the give. <laughs> yeah, I was trying to figure that out. I was like, what, is that, what does that mean? All right. So after that, <laughs> we've got the uh, – they in 2010, they announced that they were doing another Thing movie, which was kind of weird because it was like, well, they already did one. It was pretty good. Why are you doing this again? It was a prequel. They decided to run a day before or a little bit longer than what what happened in the 82 version and decided to tell us the story of the, uh, the, the what are the Finnish dudes? Why do I always get that wrong? The Norwegian guys. Norwegian. Yeah, the Norwegians. Swedish. The Swedish. No, Norwegian. Um, that, McCready said they were Swedish. I'm going with that. Yeah. I, don't, don't, don't deny him. Um, <laughs> So this is set in Antarctica a day or two, maybe a day, just a day before. I think it's like a week. Okay. Well, I was, okay. I was taking over for when they finally got Kate up there. Oh, that, yeah. But I know that like when they go to the camp, they believe that the camp's been out for like a week. So yeah, it's hard to say exactly how many days between the beginning of this movie and the beginning of the 82. Yeah, but it's a short period of time is the important part. Yeah, less than a, you know a week, no more than a week and a half. But what happens before? What happens to bring the uh, the two uh, guys chasing after the dog in the very beginning of the eighty two movie? You know what brings them there? So we get to find out what happens. So it's an an, an Antarctica research site. Uh, discovery of an alien craft leads to a confrontation between grad student Kate Lloyd and scientist Dr. Sander Halverson. Well, what a mundane way of explaining it. I know, it. right? That's terrible. That's the one from IMDb. <laughs> a confrontation. <laughs> yeah, because that's what happened. Well, well, this is directed by Matthias von Hagenjegendregendregen, Jr., uh, <laughs> who's known for some shorts. This is his first feature film, uh, written by Eric Hesseiser. Who is known for the 2010 Nightmare on Elm Street, Final Destination 5, and the recently recently released Lights Out, the one where came it, they made the movie out of that short that was on YouTube, where every time the the woman turned off the lights in the hallway, the shadow would appear. Oh, they made mm-hmm. the movie out of that. Yeah. Oh. Yep. Some reason. Good reviews. The girls short. don't want to go see it for some reason. <laughs> 
<laughs> got a lot of good reviews versus uh, the 2010 Nightmare on Elm Street disaster. Mm. Well, we watched that, didn't we? Yeah, we did. Yep. Yep. About this time last year. Yep. Right. So this is uh, starring Mary Elizabeth Winstead as Kate Lloyd, Joel Edgerton as Sam Carter, Ulrich Thompson mm-hmm. as Dr. Sander Halverson, Eric Christian Olsen as Adam Finch, Adewell, Adewell. I gotcha. Yeah, cover It's Adewale. It's Adewale Akinoe Agbaje. Yeah, I, this as, guy's best known as Mr. Echo from Lost. Yeah. He's been in a ton oh. of stuff. I was going to say, I would think he was best known for his character in Oz. Oh, well, yeah, that's that's another solid pick. Right, so we've got a whole bunch of... Or Killer Croc. Oh, recently, Yeah. A whole bunch of Finnish actors, including, I have to give it, I know there's a whole list of them here, but Christopher Hivju as Jonas, the red-headed guy, who I think parallels Windows from the first. Well, plus he is a much-loved actor from Game of Thrones. Yes, Norman, Giant's Bane. Har! Did you say giant vein? Giant vein. Mm-hmm. Giant uh, one long giant vein <laughs> on his member. Right. So, uh, and was the guy? I'm looking at the list here. The guy who went to go get Mary Elizabeth Winstead, Kate from the lab, was he in in Beerfest? Eric Christian Olsen. Yeah. Yeah, he's primarily known as a, a comedic actor, but he's done quite a few horror films. He uh, he played Lloyd Christmas in Dumb and Dumber, and yes, I believe he was also in in that film. Okay, because I'm what I'm gonna try to figure out why I recognize him. Uh, oh, he's on TV I'm, now. He's on yeah, no, NCIS LA. No, yeah. I I feel really bad about this because looking at his IMDb picture, it's not another teen movie. <laughs> oh, yeah, he's he's he started out as a comedic actor, but he's done a lot of serious stuff. He was in um uh one of the Hostel movies, I think, too, and. He's actually a pretty good actor, but I always think oh. of him as Lloyd Christmas whenever I see him because of his character, his take on Jim Carrey's mm. role. See, I that movie, not another teen movie, has a special point in my in my brain and in my heart because I decided like remember when I told my told you about my brother taking my grandmother to go see Aliens versus Predator and going to go see uh, Team America World Police. Oh yeah, yeah. I took her to go see not another teen movie. That got Oops. awkward right away. <laughs> it was just kind of like, so what you think about the movie, Grandma? Yeah, though it definitely was a movie. <laughs> yeah, well, I um, not to one up you, and this will be really quick, but um, I took That's my mom said. to go. I took my mom to go see a movie when I was up in Little Rock one time visiting her. Um, and I just heard about this movie. And I was like, oh yeah, I heard this is pretty good. Let's go see it. And the first thing that came up on the screen was a Martin Scorsese movie, and I was like, uh oh. It was the Wolf of Wall Street. I took that. I took my mother to see. A wolf. Nice. Mm. He's told us that story before. I was not going to oh, mention. Yeah, that. this Never was mind. the day after he got his haircut, and he realized he looked just like his dad. <laughs> oh, shut up! All Every you. Every time we walk by the mayor, I hate your face. <laughs> all right, before we leave the cast, I, I want to call out. I'm so glad to see Mary Elizabeth Winstead in more stuff. I thought she was awesome since Scott Pilgrim versus the World as Ramona Flowers. And I have not yet seen Ten Cloverfield Lane, but like just oh. seeing that she's getting work, uh, I think she's amazing. And uh, uh, it looks like she's going to be a main series regular in the next series of Fargo. So, oh nice! You need to watch Ten Cloverfield Lane because if you like John Goodman and you like her, 
I mean, it's primarily the two of them and the other guy, and it's really, really good. So I would recommend it. It's about 20 minutes too long, but other than that, it's a great movie. Oh come on! Never mind. And we don't want to get to that. Movie. Will ruin it if don't. Yeah, I was gonna say I haven't I haven't seen it yet. I might even see it in the next couple of weeks. Hey Josh, did you, you think the thing it, so. was twenty minutes too long? Just no. trying to bring it on back. <laughs> so thank you. Well, actually, I think that's that. We're gonna get to that because I think Patrick uh, has an opinion very similar to that. Mm-hmm. So uh, some of the trivia on this one, there were, they took an enormous number of screenshots from the eighty-two version and were kept all over the set while filming at all times in order to ensure that, like Pat had said, the Norwegian station looked just like it should from the from the eighty two version. And yeah, they did a really good job with the uh, yes. with the consistency with the uh, what's the word I'm looking for the um, continuity. continuity. Yeah, I mean that's what you know. Watching the first one with or watching two thousand eleven with Katie, and when we in the two thousand uh, thirteen, I'm sorry, nineteen eighty two version. When they came down the hallway and the axe was still in the wall from where he cut the arm thing in half, yeah, yeah, just, that or I the started guy committed suicide, right? And I started and, and, geeking and, and like out. the first time that they, you know, that they showed that ice block in the '82 movie and the people standing up on the, you know, on the stairwell. I was like, oh, that's a stairwell. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and then even all the way down to, I mean, to, again, to talk about the '82 version the, and how they made sure the continuity was there. In the helicopter, in the very beginning of the 82, he lifts up the blanket and opens up the case full of grenades. Mm-hmm. You know, so now you know why they have the grenades. I mean, there's so much. The thing is, they you can tell there's a lot of respect and love for the 82 version in this one. Oh, yeah. And they had an obsessive level of detail, which I think, even if you hate the movie, you've got to respect that. The only thing that they, I think the one thing that I caught that, that was not accurate but everything else was. I mean, literally everything else when you watch them backwards, uh, the way most of us did, mm-hmm. is the goggles on the uh, Norwegians that are chasing the dog. Other than that, it's spot on. That's yeah. the only thing that's different. And I can toss it off to they. You know, he couldn't see anything with those goggles, so he swapped them off for a pair that were in the helicopter. Well, because in in the and that's I think where they got where they got away with it is because in the in the end of 2011. When they, he, the guy shows up and he's like, we gotta go. And he makes him take, take him up in the chopper. Um, the guy doesn't have any goggles on. He's, mm-hmm. you can see his whole face. And so, and the other guy doesn't have them on yet. They're just on his head. So once they're in mid flight, he puts them on. The other guy puts them down, but it, it's kind of, it kind of throws it off because when they leave, they're not there. But when they, the original picks up where it left off, they are. But other than that, you, you literally, could, you could kind of imagine that there's a, there's a, point in time where they're chasing the dog that they don't bother putting that in the movie and they you know they're like they're in the helicopter with the open windows for so long their eyes dry out they put the goggles on exactly so you can write it off yeah absolutely but it's It's, it's not like suddenly one of them is black or something yeah (laughs) (laughs) turn to the guys from uh cool runnings what the hell i don't (laughs) know (laughs) all of a sudden cheech and chong are in there like they're not even norwegian (laughs) and then a horse gets off the helicopter it's like wait what so uh, some of the creature effects were done primarily with cable-operated animatronic robots on the director's insistence since it would improve the performance of the cast because they would be able to see what they had to react to. Uh, they also used computer-generated images to add elements of animatronics, such as the tentacles, or in some cases to replace the entire thing if it didn't look convincing. Which I have to say, 
if given the choice between the effects in 2011 to two, uh, 1982, I'm going to go with 1982 every single time. Which I'm, I'm definitely a fan of practical effects. And uh, I think that was the only thing that kind of caused a little bit of a disconnect was how much faster it was in the, the prequel and how much more insane kind of it moved around. But you couldn't do that in 82. And so I kind of wish they would have stuck with that theme and kind of kept more with practical effects, even if it didn't be as convincing. wasn't mm-hmm. as <laughs> didn't be as convincing. I love it. Convincing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> don't, don't think it'd be like it is, but it do. <laughs> Thank you very much. What and it is, see. what it was, what it shall be. More trivia, sir. Oh, uh, yeah. So it's mentioned in the DVD commentary that the remains that Kate Lloyd is examining at the beginning of the movie is one of the dog things from the original 82. Nice. So, and which is, which is, cause I was like, I, I noticed something was wrong there when she's inspecting this and they're like, oh, it's supposed to be some like this, uh, you know, prehistoric cave bear or something. And I'm looking at that going, that ain't right. I, I mean, I, not to say that I've ever seen a prehistoric cave bear before, but, I'm laying a bet there's something wrong here, and then finding this out made sense to me. But again, just goes like, to more they, but, nods I mean, to it. Time timeline wise, that doesn't make any sense. So that's just a meta thing for the movie. I guess. Oh yeah, well, it's that's totally a, a nod for to the it. fans. Right, yeah, yeah. Uh, going, that doesn't. How could she be? Exactly? Yeah. Okay. yeah. Uh, some of the songs uh, that the crew are singing when they are doing the big happy dance because they found an alien. Sami Ednan. Sami Ednan, right? Which gives me. It is the Norwegian entry in the 1980 Eurovision Song Contest. Oh, God, here we go again. Originally sung by Sver Kigelsberg and we're, Matthias. We're, we're, we're one and one so far on the on Eurovision songs. Yes. <laughs> and. This will break the tie. Yeah. Enkel tome, to smor, Sami Adnan, Sami Skjord. Kom som vindpust i fra nord, i fra nord, Sami Adnan. And that's all I got of that. That's done. <laughs> I don't know if I like that or hate it. That's my jam. <laughs> New ringtone. <laughs> Dude, that's going to be playing at my funeral. <laughs> Lots of things are going to be playing at your funeral, man. We're making sure of it. Um, the other one everything. is called... <laughs> Wait, who says I'm going to play to you? <laughs> I'm just going to put my phone on shuffle. <laughs> it's like it's, Pat's phone goes off at Joel's funeral. And it's the same uh, Boy Wonder We Love You 48 times in a row. <laughs> that was the first that's, thing. That's true. True story. So, and the other one is called Geg- Joel will look down and be like, that's appropriate. <laughs> Jegik in Turpastin, which translated right. means I walked along the forest path. It's a children's song about somebody walking in the woods and meeting a cuckoo bird. I think yeah. saying the name of that song is child abuse. <laughs> so so, they, so th- those were the songs they were singing when they were dancing and drinking. Right. Okay, gotcha. I just wanted an excuse to play a Eurovision song. <laughs> well, we're now one and two. Right. <laughs> Eurovision. Can't all be winners. This one they wasn't. Can't, they can't all be the, what, what was that song? I don't even I know. I remember which one was a good one. I don't, I don't even know, but all I know is that after I listened to that Eurovision song, it jacked up my YouTube suggestions for so long. <laughs> <laughs> Where's the fish or something like something that? No, no, ding-a-dong. Ding a 
Yeah, Ding oh, and Dong. Yeah, oh. Ding and Dong. Really, I mean, and the thing is, my YouTube is connected to my PlayStation, so now with my kids on there, I I wanted to watch YouTube on the train, and I had like, hey, you want to look at another uh, retro mix of Ding and Dong or PewDiePie? <laughs> and Andy took another drink. To was like, who is this man on the train I'm sitting next to? <laughs> Free candy. Yep. Oh, I do, by the way, I did get to watch this. Uh, I watched it uh, on the train also. I downloaded it onto my tablet and got a seat all to myself. <laughs> Again. So, what do Free you guys candy, think? but only for Norwegian children. Right. What do, you, what do you guys think about this one? It's got a bigger cast. There's a lot more going on. It tries to explain all the events before the first one. Do you think it did a good job? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because they take a lot of liberties with the, well, the original didn't say that it was all just a bunch of Norwegians. Mm-hmm. And uh, they, they fill in a lot of gaps in some unusual directions for a uh, 1982 Norwegian expedition in Antarctica. But if you can suspend your disbelief on that, I think that the more multinational uh, sort of camp there is a lot more interesting than a bunch of frozen, like 30 something Norwegian guys talking in subtitles the entire movie. <laughs> yeah. It, oh, yeah. Right. By the they way, had... speaking of subtitles, you know how I told you guys that I would, you know, I didn't like that I don't have subtitles on the Fire Stick I'm using? Mm-hmm. Well, I found out that there's an option for download subtitles, and like, so halfway through the movie, I, I got subtitles. Hooray. Oh, good. Yeah. Huzzah. So the first half of the movie, I don't know what they said every time they said anything in Norwegian, but the second half, I was all over it. <laughs> well, oh, so I you missed the, the amazing joke at the beginning. <laughs> what was it? He's joking. Oh, that's no, the joke? No, no there, there's a yeah. joke that they're, yeah. tol- that they're telling in the opening scene. Yeah, the very first uh, scene, there's a, there's a joke. Well, I'll have to go back and watch it just for the joke. I missed it, too, then. You had Cut subtitles. How did you miss it? I didn't. You didn't oh, you subtitles? didn't have subtitles either? Nope. You had a janky copy? I thought it was intentional. Oh, man. Yeah, see, I watched it on uh, DVD, so yeah. definitely. You don't miss so much where you can't follow it without subtitles, but it definitely takes something away. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I finally picked them up because uh, I realized I was like, I wanted, I, that was when I decided I wanted to try and find out how I could do subtitles because that whole scene when they had the four guys off to the side and the two guys are talking in, you know, in, in Norwegian to each other and trying to convince the other guy to let, you know, I was like, I want to know what they're saying. I mean, obviously they wouldn't not put subtitles here. So I went on a hunt and that's how I found out, oh, I can get subtitles. So. It's interesting because they remake several of the scenes, but it's never slavish. Like you do have the rec room scene, which is the uh, sort of equivalent to the blood test scene. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's also cool that while both teams figure out very quickly what the alien's doing and how. They use slightly different methods, and each team uncovers methods for testing about the aliens that the other one doesn't. Like, nobody has the full picture. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In a lot of ways, the, the prequel is similar, almost a retelling of the 82 version, but at the same time, it's not at all, and it's an entirely different movie. But it, there's so many parallels that well, both you know, movies people didn't are basically know about the exact same thing just happening to two different groups of people. Exactly, and almost the same situation, minus how they get the creature and kind of the ultimate outcome. So it's it's interesting in that regard, the way they wrote it, that they did make it play out to be almost a standalone piece. But when you put them together, you get one 
like I watched it, one cohesive narrative for four hours almost. It was also a very strong choice for them not to make Mary Elizabeth Winstead's character basically a girl version of McCready. They decided instead intentionally to model her more after Ellen Ripley, mm-hmm. which and was a v- brilliant decision. Yeah. I mean, I don't think I could have bought a, a female McCready. I don't think that. I mean, just just because it was like a compa- one thing is compared to the way they dealt thing dealt with things in the first movie to the second movie. The first, I mean, well, shit, I keep getting them screwed up. Uh, two thousand eleven to two eighty two. I think two thousand eleven. There was a lot of guessing. There was a lot of. I mean, they had a little bit more of the. We don't know what to do. We can't figure it out. That. Well, in the in the 2011 version, she starts off by almost immediately telling them, "This is what's going on. This is what this creature can do," and they all just were like, "Whatever, woman." Right. <laughs> and it, whereas you know, in the in the 82 version, you know, they have the, the the male doctor telling them, "This is what's going on." So all of them go, "Oh my god, he's he's telling the truth." Well, and you kind of wonder if after they go to the original outpost, if they don't. Uh, in the in the eighty two version, if they don't gather some intel that helps them along their way, to some extent, mm-hmm. whereas in the two thousand eleven, I mean, they're completely fresh off the boat. So, well, yeah, they're the original discoverers, right? So. And I do have to say, part of that, I think, Doctor Halverson, he's just a dick. <laughs> I mean, it's just, I mean, from the very beginning, when when she's like, maybe we shouldn't drill into the alien being. And he's and he come, takes her in the hallway and you know don't contradict me, all right? Let's just assume that there's nothing in there that's going may you know infect all of us that's been sitting there for the last hundred thousand years. You know she's right. the voice of reason and she gets swatted down. You know one one of my questions is you know if they hadn't dug into it would it still have gotten out? I mean did digging into it wake it up? And it was. Well, just I think my, that's exactly what they were implying. Yeah, because yeah. I mean, if it's going to sit up to hundred thousand years in the ice, you know, and then suddenly, you know, five minutes later after this thing touches it, I think we could say that that was definitely the, uh, the catalyst. Yeah. The catalyst. Thank you. Yeah. And when, and I uh, mean, Oh, go ahead. I'll say, and, and one of my, one of the parts that I liked was, on uh, Derek Jameson, when Jameson went back to look at the big ice block and it busts out of the top and jumps through the roof. Yeah. And he's just like, it's loose. And then that one guy's like, cuckoo. <laughs> Just like, <laughs> yeah, right. That. I mean, I don't understand how those guys didn't immediately just shit their pants. Because when you have an alien being in a block of ice in the other room, and someone runs in and says, it's loose, or whatever it was that he exactly said, everybody should shit their pants immediately. Nobody should go, oh, whatever, I don't even know what you're talking about. There's not an alien in the other room. <laughs> no kidding. See, I do that well, just occasionally, you know, just in case there's an alien. Just <laughs> randomly. You Random. do that after you take shits. <laughs> And we we take you seriously every time you tell us. Um, th- when they're first drilling into it, there's that moment where there's that slight hesitation, and then they 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 crack the ice and start. You see it slowly going down, to- closer and closer. That scene is, uh, and I think that you guys had already touched on this, but it, it's it's so it's kind of intense because you know as soon as they touch that, everything's going to change, right. and they don't know that, but you know that. And the way it's done is is really effective, and I gotta say. Between the two, I mean, for this one, I think one of the more disturbing sequences is when they first kind of get their first glimpse of it under the house or under the, the cabin thing. That thing is is messed up looking. Mm-hmm. 
when he eats. The oh, you talking guy. about when all the claws were coming through the wall and everything? Before yeah. that, when it's just sitting under there and it grabs the guy and starts trying to swallow him. Oh yeah, yeah. And you oh, see God. it. You don't see all of it, and that's that's what's beautiful about it is that you just see little glimpses of it, and it's so dark that you get a little, you know, gristly, shiny part here, and then a claw there, and it's right. just and, really and, and it's it's that's the Jaws principle at work. I mean, you know, every time a director wants to show more, show more, you know, it always works out better when somehow they can't, right? Or they don't, you know. I mean, I. And that's, you know, to fast forward just a little bit on my review of this movie, that's the problem I have with the ending is I think it, this movie, I, I, don't think, I don't think they should have gone onto the ship and had a battle and fought it out and blow them up with, with the grenade and all that kind of stuff because it's just that, that whole CGI-based, you know, fight scene between the two of them, it just felt too, um, too modern, I guess. It, it felt too much like what cinema is going for a little bit too much now. Like just because you can do the CGI doesn't mean you should. Mm-hmm. And well, I, did, I get. I, <clears throat> go ahead. I was going to say I get what you're saying, but you know that they have to have the hatch open because that's how it was found in the right. '82 movie. Right. You know that the ship has to be out of commission because that's how it was found. And if you just have Mary Elizabeth Winstead's character just, like, suddenly killed with no fanfare, the alternative to what they did that uh, – I don't know that you're directly suggesting that, but if they don't do it that way, the alternative becomes extremely unsatisfying in terms of having a narrative arc if you're only ever watching this movie. I mean, they could have done, like, a, a, a you know, self-sacrifice. She straps herself with some, you know – thermite or whatever and goes down there and blows up and incapacitates the ship and takes out the bad guy i don't know i mean i just, I just felt like it was it was just too uh too not i don't know what the word i'm looking for but just it almost Hollywood. feels like like nowadays in horror movies there's almost this progression where they're like we show you a little we show you a little more we show you a little more and then we get you know it's, it's almost like this this unwritten guarantee that you're giving your audience by the end of the movie you're going to get to see this whole thing in full light and it's going to be really awesome yeah, and that's and that's one of the things I think that they did better in the '82 version is because exactly. you never really saw the whole monster at the same time. Even when the thing was, you know, like think about when you first saw it trying to morph into the dogs. The lights were out. You really didn't see the entire thing all at one time. Even when they torched it, and the, they even used the you know the surroundings to show it you know more than they because like there was a lot of like you know secondary type shots of the monster like you know they, they showed the dog up against the wall with all the tentacles wrapping around it like i mean that that that's you know not showing the creature itself that's showing what the creature's doing but it's also communicating what the creature looks like you know i mean it's better i think to do things like that and because like like steven spielberg in you know what i was referring to earlier in the jaws thing you know his original idea was to have the shark you know appear like 50 percent of the time on the screen and he had so many mechanical problems, it wasn't possible. And it made the movie better because it built the suspense. And mm-hmm. I think yep. I think this movie in particular, the thing, the whole franchise, it works so well on suspense that I think, you know, going through the motions of, of making sure that you give the full-on view of the creature as it, you know, has the middle head of the guy that, you know, is the professor that she hates and has mm-hmm. been the, the, the main protagonist and... Yeah. antagonist, I mean, and, you know, all this kind of stuff. It just, it, it just felt almost like too much of a Hollywood payoff. Right. It, it, uh, that, I guess that's fair. Yeah, I think I, I agree with you on this, Pat, because I think if they had remained with the the creatures there, but it's just out of your out of your uh, vision. Right. 
You know, it's it's where you can't see it. And that's the most terrifying thing in these movies is that you know it's there, but, I mean, think about, like, another John Carpenter film. Think of uh, Halloween. You know Michael Myers is there. I mean, how many scenes did we did you see in that where, you know, something's going on inside the house and you just see him walk by the window? And there's a reason why they never have Michael Myers fighting on on a stage with you know stage lights on him you know in a, in a one-on-one battle with you know Inigo Montoya or whatever you know I mean I would pay of, to see that <laughs> but part of the appeal is like the 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 hidden shadows like the the you know I mean not in the daylight kind of thing you know but despite the the 2011 scene that you're talking about in the spaceship at least it wasn't the scorpion king <laughs> that's true I'm still reeling from the fact that Patrick seems to confuse Jamie Lee Curtis and Inigo Montoya. (laughs) (laughs) Right. I'm just saying there's not some epic out in the open battle with Mike Myers, you know. (laughs) Right. That didn't happen until Buster Rhymes did it Something something else that really – one thing that really bugged me about it that kind of took me out of the whole transition from, you know, the Norwegians to the American base – I don't know what kind of technology the Norwegians had in 82, but looking at those cells under the microscope and seeing them oh. absorb the other ones and then going to the American base and they've got the Atari 2600 <laughs> computer. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. Where it's like clearly just a, a, a graphic program that is running where it's like, okay, now draw a line here. Meet, 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 yeah, meet, I mean, meet. when they're on their entire, their entire uh, science program is written in basic. <laughs> <laughs> Blair's doing all his work on a TRS-80. Yeah, pretty much. He's got a whole pile of cassette tapes over there, and he's pissed off because McCready used one of them to record his last words. <laughs> he's got an abacus. But, yeah. And he threw a drink at the other one. I know, right? What the hell? Who pours a drink into a computer? I mean, how, what are you going to do? You can't play chess for the rest of the time you're down there, dude. Yeah, she's a cheating bitch anyway. Yeah. <laughs> he's a sore loser. Yeah. The body count on this one starts out a little slow and then is very bursty. Like the cast uh, rapidly contracts. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it really... The rec room scene, how many people die? Five? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, that, was a, that was a bloodbath in the rec room. <laughs> well, and you know what's funny? And, and this is just a quick aside. I, I watched uh, The 51, and in that original film... There's like, at the base, there's probably 30 people or more. Holy cow. And in the end of the film, I think almost, almost all of them, I mean, there's very little death and there's only one monster and there's no, you know, it's not nearly the same storyline. It's like, you know, kind of, kind of talking about the Shining book versus the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, they made it their own versus the short story, which was, as Mike said, more like 82. So... You know, yeah, and in the story too, there's like thirty five, forty people in this base. So I mean, it's there's, and the thing is, they took the original source material, everybody plucked what they wanted from it, and I think, I granted, the fifties they couldn't, they could not do a movie like the thing as it was written in nineteen fifties. Right, they they would have all been arrested. (laughs) Yeah, same as the fly. You know, they couldn't, they couldn't make it as gory as the remake. Holy crap! Talk about two different films, right? Help me. I just realized that there's another slight continuity error. If you've basically only got Lars as the person who is on the base for the majority of the time, that is the only person who doesn't understand English, why the hell, when Dr. Copper grabs all of the notes, 
are they not in the most common shared language on the Norwegian base, which would have been English? He can't understand uh, them because they're all in Norwegian. Uh, was Lars the main scientist? Right. Yeah, that's the thing. Is Why would they not write them in the language that the other scientists could for sure read? Saying, I mean, could they have been Lars Notes? Was he the main scientist? No, Lars was a go- He was a grunt. Yeah, okay. So that, yeah, that makes no sense then. My, in my mind, it was like one, it was like um, some <laughs> Mel Brooks movie, uh, "To Be or Not to Be," when they're speaking Polish in the very beginning, and they're like, "Okay, we're just going to assume everybody's speaking Polish from here on out." <laughs> in my mind, everyone was still speaking Nordic, but I you could just it, understand it. <laughs> you know what it is? You know what it is, Josh? Oh God, what is it? These were not, no. I mean, this is serious. These, these were not papers uh, that were written for. The, the other people on the base, these are like scientific papers written to take back home, which is why they were written in Norway. Okay, I guess, yeah. and you can make a case with Dr. Halverson, Dr. Sander, him being such a douche that he really didn't care whether the Americans could read them or not. Right. Yeah. So they could have been his papers. I guess it's not an error. It's just one of these things that obviously this is a retcon to put Americans and to put various people on the base that – uh in the original, you kind of get a glimpse of the videotapes. The videotapes suggest a very different base from the one we see in the 2011 film. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, and quick. Oh, good. I was just going to say, in the videotapes, you also kind of see just a bunch of Norwegians using thermite charges to dig the ship out of the ice, which is not really a scene we ever get in this. Well, I with the thermite thing, I kind of my explanation for that was they were just making the the hole bigger for them to get down there or maybe that was just how they opened the hole right okay i guess that could have happened in the uh break in time that we don't see between the initial contact where they fall into the ice and then well, that could be happening while they're transporting the block of ice back the other guys could be sure back. yeah and that i mean my explanation on that one is you know they're and they were. That's what they had to do. They had to make it so everybody could get down there. You can't just say, "Hey, jump, jump in this crevasse," and trust me. That's <laughs> how many times have I heard that? Uh, At least twice from me. That's right. You know, they had to blast so, their way down there, and then the explanation for the ship being completely exposed in the eighty-two version is that it tried to escape. So help me remember because I'm drawing a blank all of a sudden. At the end of two thousand eleven. Uh, you've got Mary Elizabeth Winstead's character and Joel Egerton's Sam and Kate, and she realizes that you know Sam is is a thing because he's lost his earring. So she's obviously not a doppelganger. So she torches him. Spoilers, but she's still alive, correct? Yeah. For a while, I mean, her fate is kind of the same as Childs and McCready in the original, where she's one. But what now? You get to freeze to death! Yay! <laughs> Well, and that's the thing, is she's not that far from the base, I don't think. I mean, I don't remember how far they were from the, the spaceship, but um, when the other guys show up to examine the old area, would she have not have seen them? Uh, I mean, I it guess... 40, it was 40 below at one point, as McCready said. She's so. got a fire, though. She's got a giant flaming cat in front of her. And Go ahead. She, she doesn't know there's an American base out. Sam, even though he was a thing at that point, told her about a Russian one. It could be assumed that if she survives, she tried to make for the Russian base. 
Mm, so there's a potential there for your third trilogy, I guess. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, because there's no reason for her to go back to the Norwegian base. She knows that Lars is alive, but she also knows the place is a smoldering wreck because she set it on fire. Yeah, well, she knows Lars might be alive. And if he is, is he Lars? True. So there's there's your that that we just wrote the trilogy right there is there's the third part is you pick up the prequel after the original for the sequel to the original stop it what <laughs> don't do that ever again so it the third sense, one but... is chronologically third and also right. right. movie wise third and in this case is Kate arriving at the russian base with well, the almost, thing that would almost be simultaneously going on with the 82 or but they couldn't even have any of that because if, if all of the things, quote unquote, are gone and they find these bodies and they autopsy to figure out what the hell happened, that could trigger the whole reaction again. That's the thing is if you don't that, basically throw all of the corpses into a volcano, there's no way you can make sure this creature's completely dead. Because if there's just a little bit of candy center in the middle of the burnt mm-hmm. husk, uh, just a couple cells are enough for the whole process to start again. Right, and oh, we learned that when they brought the get access to air, apparently. Yeah, when they brought the they brought the uh, what's it? Then they brought the two face thing back to the uh, to the base. That's the thing that was moving under the blanket when Windows was looking at it. So, mm-hmm. well, even if they came and found the base, the Russians are like, you know, they get a distress signal and they come back to that base, and they're like, you know, scavenging for stuff, and they take that axe back. As soon as it starts to melt, well, there you go, it starts all over again. Interesting. There you go. Hollywood, if you're listening, we'll take a check, uh, one for each of us. <laughs> right. Let's get on that. In the amount of $1.02. So would we all actually have our f- overall impressions of this one? I appreciated how it very very much tried and mostly succeeded in being true to the original movie. Um, I liked watching how it, it you know tied up all the ends and for the most part, matched up very well with the beginning of the original, and the only problem I had with it was really that final fight scene. I just did, I thought that was a little bit out of character for the franchise, and I didn't hate it. I just thought it was a little bit too much. Uh, but other than that, I'd give it a big thumbs up. It's not as good as the original, but I enjoyed it. I agree with Pat. It's not as good as the original, but there was a lot of love for the original in this one that that shows. You can respect it, yeah. Right. Yeah, I'm with I'm with you guys. When it comes to reimaginings or whatever of classic film, there's a lot of things that could go wrong. This could have been a hell of a lot worse. And the fact that it was good, if not amazing, in my mind, gives it a thumbs up. Even if I think that because of how rapid the body count is and how much CGI special effects they wanted to show off – you still had the who can trust who elements, especially with a lot more of the human on human violence mm-hmm. in this one. F- for good reason, you don't quite have the slow burn of everyone constantly looking at each other for days, not sleeping, scared, knowing they can't trust anybody. Kind of slow burn of the original. That's kind of the the core of the original, and they didn't quite hit hit it on the head. Yeah, and that it, is it was more of a psychological thriller the first one and this one was more of a um a uh visual thriller. Yeah. Joel. Uh, I for me I I when I saw them independently of each other the two the one time each that I've seen each of them I 
appreciated them, but I didn't love them. And I figured at some point I might come back to them. But seeing them back to back as a whole and seeing all the care that was put into both of them and seeing the whole story in one, like I said earlier, one narrative, I really appreciated it a lot more and I enjoyed it a lot more. And um, aside from, you know, the few little things here and there, inconsistencies with, you know, the technology now versus then, I think uh, as a whole, it makes a great story. And um, I definitely would give it thumbs up. Cool. So I think we uh, we have a eight thumbs up record on this one. Yeah. And I think in general, most of us, no, not the first. It it happens uh, rarely, but it happens. Yeah. Uh, There were actually a few things about 2011. I I liked better than 82. I mean, let's face it. uh, 80s movies have a very uh, distinct style of pacing Mm -hmm. and uh, they require a little bit more patience to watch. And the pacing on this one was more accessible. I'm not going to say better, because I do li- like the slow burn, but it was more accessible, and in some ways, my tastes have gotten to the point where I kind of prefer the more modern pacing. You know you know what the, the main selling fact, well, not really selling, but what should tip the scales for you to the 82 movie? Hmm. Stevie Wonder. Oh, yeah. I thought you were going to say Kurt Russell. There's Stevie Wonder in the 82 movie. I'm just saying there's none. There's no Stevie Wonder in 2011. There I mean, is. don't get me wrong, Joel. Kurt Russell is awesome, but like, if you're cobbling together your trade, you're gonna say uh, you get Kurt Russell, I get Mr. Echo, Mary Elizabeth Winstead, Joel Edgerton, Christopher Hivju, and a first round draft pick. I'm probably making that trade. <laughs> Dude, I'm writing it up right now. I don't know. Kurt Russell's a superstar. You you never get full value on a superstar. I don't know. I'm going into rebuilding for the third movie, so. Yeah. Hey, but we we haven't had a uh, Mary Elizabeth Winstead show yet, so. One of the, we finished watching the two of them. I was sitting there asking Katie, you know, which one she liked. And she liked both of them. She likes fast pacing. You know, both of them she really enjoyed. One of the things that made me laugh is she goes, I like to think that there is this, uh, you know, like McCready and Jack Burton are all from the same family. And every year they get together for a gathering, like they have a family reunion every year, and everyone talks about whatever thing they had to kill that year. (laughs) (laughs) It's just like, I killed this thing from outer space. Yeah, well, I had to deal with a uh, Chinese Chinese god waking up, you know, that sort of... What if if every Kurt Russell character was related and they had to meet at a family reunion? That would be awesome. (laughs) Right? They they, They already did the the, uh, Big Trouble in Little China... uh, the dad from what was it called? This uh, super high or whatever that where he was a superhero. Yeah, but don't let stuntman Jack into the family reunion. <laughs> or stuntman Mike. Stuntman yeah. Mike. What is that from? And stuntman Bob. Oh, Death Proof. They they oh, they actually are, did a comic series or just started with uh, uh, Jack Burton and uh, Snake Plissken. Nice. nice together. Yeah. So anyway. All right, so... Yeah, the uh, guy from Overboard is like, what am I doing here? <laughs> I don't know any of you people. I like when oh. he goes, bah, 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 bah. Awesome. Uh, Christopher Hivju, our uh, favorite Norwegian guy, who's uh, also Tormund, he's going to be in Fast 8. Uh, still never seen one of those movies. I will go to my grave never seeing. Oh. So, speaking of Fast 8, what's next week? <laughs> what? <laughs> Next week, we are going to be taking a look at the Blair Witch Project. We're yeah. going into the projects. 
Wait. The Blair Witch Projects. The Blair Underwood Projects. Wait, the Blair Witch Projects? Those projects. Yeah, those. The Blair ones. Oh. We've had this discussion a couple times. Blair Witches, bitches, as it says <laughs> in the show notes. So, uh, so yeah, so we're going to Blair Witch 2000, no, 1997, 98? Six, six or seven, yeah, something like 99. that. 99. 99. 99? The original is 99. Wow, we're uh, yeah, the right line. on our uh, our uh, cutoff mark. Yeah, and uh, the one that just came out a couple weeks ago is... So if you have any ideas, give us a call. It's 708-NOW-RAP. That's 708-669-9727. And uh, let us know what you think. If you have any comments, did we miss some glaring plot point in these two movies that you need to talk about? Or... Uh, is there a Eurovision song that I totally need to put into the soundtrack here? Um, you know, as always, you can always reach out to us on Twitter at 40go14. Shoot us an email at 40go14 at gmail.com or check us out on our Facebook page. Just search for 40 going on 14 podcast. Right on. All right. Well, I don't want to be in here. I want to go inside. <laughs> I, I, you gotta love Wilford. You can't. You can't miss him. He's awesome. He, yeah. well, he shoots like a stormtrooper. Yeah. <laughs> I'll kill all of you. No, you won't. <laughs> I'm good. You only got six bullets, and you can't hit shit. <laughs> I don't know, man. With that axe, he was pretty good. <laughs> yeah. a, he needed to stick to the axe. He was a hell of a lot better with that. Yeah, you're not a range. You're not a range weapon master. And you're... how many flamethrowers do they have on an Arctic base? What is that about? Okay, right. It's explained in the short story. In the short story, they like they do flamethrower studies. No, they explain it because they have to. They have to thaw things. They have to thaw engines. They have to thaw ice off of things. They have to use instead of going up there with, you know, the ice hammers and all that. They use the. Ah. They use that to thaw off equipment that can take the. They can take the flames, but. They don't want to, you know, you can't exactly go up there and bang on a helicopter with a hammer to get the ice off, but you can use that to... really, really giant, a giant credit card, and you just scrape off the rotors. (laughs) It's a billboard-sized credit card. (laughs) The toughest part about de-icing this helicopter is holding onto the card. (laughs) That's that was probably also post. the night I pooped in your cat box. <laughs> 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 <laughs>